Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, which we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts. Our goal in doing them is to give you a glimpse inside how things really work on a professional and a personal basis, not only for myself, but for my many friends and for my colleagues here at SkyBridge. I want you to get a sense for what things are really like, the authenticity of it rather than the shellac and the sort of a glorified or sanitized version of people's successes. We, uh, we really try to have real conversations here. Uh, I will share with you the many faces of success and let you in on how I got here, but also how my friends got here, because I think it's important that we all understand that greatness, it, it exists inside all of us. Uh, and what I'm hoping is, is by listening to these podcasts, something will trigger in yourself, some type of thing that you love, that you're super passionate about, and you'll go out and do it, and you'll go out and kill at it. It takes a lot of hard work, obviously, and intense focus to achieve success, but the possibilities are there. And frankly, it's all up to you to find what motivates you, what gets you up in the morning, and what puts you on your path to success. So TMI, it's a place to ask me and my colleagues here anything. Share with us a wild or crazy story or Talk to us about your weaknesses and how you overcame them or your your strengths, uh, uh, anything, frankly. So email me, podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. And again, uh, for those of you that don't know who I am, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. It's a global investment firm. Uh, we've got about $12 billion under management. But I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor. I am a co-host of a television program. It's the iconic show called Wall Street Week. And I do that with my uh, very close friend, Gary Kaminsky, every Friday night. It's aired at 8 p.m. You can also get a replay of that show Saturday at 9 a.m. and Sunday at the same time. Even if you don't watch the show, please put it on in your spare bedroom. I need the ratings. Uh, keep me on the air, please. I'm also the author of two books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds uh, and Goodbye, Gordon Gecko. I've got a third book coming out in October. Uh, it'll actually be, uh, the publication date is October the 25th, which is my daughter Amelia's birthday, uh, and it's on entrepreneurship. I tell you guys every week the same thing, but I'll say it again here. I'm not the typical Wall Street guy, not super fancy by any means. I live two miles from my mom and dad. Uh, it could be part of my Italian heritage, which we're going to talk about a little bit here today. Uh, but I, what I also really think it is about being grounded and not getting sucked into things or feeling too important, no matter what way or direction your life is going. Uh, and so uh, my mom and dad live in the same house I grew up in. I live two miles from them. It's important to me to be close to my family and to stay connected and to realize what is really the most important things about life. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, can relate to that. Today, I'm in a Zegna suit. 30 years ago, I was in 100% poly, but today I'm wearing 100% wool. Uh, but I like my favorite attire is actually cargo shorts which the Wall Street Journal criticized a few weeks ago, and I took that to heart. I went out and bought 17 more pairs of them. Uh, and I like my Wall Street Week t-shirt on the weekends. I like to be approachable. So if you see me on the street, come over and say hi. I always appreciate that. I also pride myself as a risk taker. And I'm not talking about taking risks just in the markets. It's about with people uh, betting on somebody that may be down on their luck or betting on somebody that needs a change in circumstance or ideas, uh, ideas that people don't see as so relevant or obvious uh, until they become obvious. Uh, I once wrote in one of my books that the obvious isn't obvious until it's obvious. That sounds like Yogi Berra, but the truth of the matter is 
nobody saw the opportunity in the franchise Wall Street Week. That that show was on Channel 13 or PBS here in New York. Uh, it was on for 35 years. When Mr. Rukeyser died, the show faded. Uh, it was off the air for 11 years. We went and bought the show, brought it back on the air. Uh, people thought we were crazy, and that's my example of taking a risk with ideas, uh, something we talk about often here at TMI. Today, I want to talk about heart and soul and what binds people together. My next guest, in my mind, and I'm sure it's in his mind as well, although he'll never say that on this uh, show, but he's an Italian king. Uh, he's an aristocrat. Uh, you you thought it was the late, great Frank Sinatra or perhaps uh, the late James Gattolfini or the living legend Bobby De Niro, but that's not really true. The real Italian superstars to me are the guys that get up in the morning and they become uh, the best at what they do, professional in every way, uh, a man of great kindness, a man of great charity, uh, and a guy who I view as a role model. Please welcome to TMI, Joseph Del Rosso. Joe, thanks for being here. Well, Anthony, thank you, and humbled by your introduction. Well, I, but I mean, I mean in every word. You're just a very unique, very special guy. Um, I uh, love being Italian, uh, as you know. Uh, I love our culture. Uh, uh, TMI, to some people, stands about too much information. I feel we can never give out enough information about our culture. And so I want you to talk to us a little bit about your family, the family you grew up in, the neighborhood that you grew up in, your lifestyle, uh, and who you are today. Well, um, I uh, grew up outside of uh, Philadelphia in the suburbs. Uh, my um, Grandfathers were born in Italy and came to America at the turn of the last century. Um, my mother's father was a tailor. My father's father was, uh, they were trained as carpenters. And um, all settled in Philadelphia. By coincidence, all came from the same region in Italy, the Abruzzo, and the same province. Um, the joke in the family was after they, my parents, you know, decided to get engaged and get married, the families got together, and then they started worrying, well, are they, are we related? Can we, we have to call the <laughs> wedding off? <laughs> but be that as it may, um, they, uh, you know, they, uh, my mother grew up in South Philadelphia where, you know, was, uh, and, and she always talks about, she said, people say to her, well, in the Depression, she said, what was it like? She said, well, you know what we could say about the Italian neighborhoods? We were poor, but we didn't know it. And that's a, I think that's 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 quite a commentary because it shows you about the social fabric and people they didn't have the big you know uh, entitlement society in those days. She, um, you know, to talk it shows how people really watched out for one another. Families and extended families and commitment communities. Commitment to family, hard work, love. You know, we we were talking today. Uh, uh, today uh, is my grandmother's 116th birthday. Uh, she was born in 1905. Uh, she immigrated to the United States in 1923. Uh, against her father's wishes, I might add, her brother stayed in Italy uh, and uh, raised his family in the same town as my great-grandfather. But my grandmother was insistent upon coming to the United States. She got a letter from one of her friends, uh, boarded a boat, and headed for Ellis Island. And, uh, uh, you know, look, she started out very humbly as a hard worker, a laborer. Uh, uh, she didn't have any problem turning a bed or doing laundry or sewing for people. Um, and so for me, uh, when I think about my life, I'm so grateful to her uh, for the sacrifices and the courage that she had 
uh, to bring herself over here so that we could share in this great American experience. That's what I, I remind my children all the time. You have to understand the sacrifices that, you know, they were, their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents uh, made. Uh, my father's father, um, as I said, they, were, they came over as carpenters, but uh, with no education, he, uh, he had the entrepreneurial spirit. And in 1936, he set up his own general construction company in Philadelphia at a time when it was tough for, you know, Italian immigrants, especially if you were going to go into construction. Um, they were, had better opportunities in the trades if they were masonry contractors or specialty contractors. He, he took on general construction. He had to deal with, you know, the principals, and he built a very successful business for himself. And, uh, and at the same time as, as he was building the business, you know, build a reputation himself as a, as a man who was respected, integrity, and, and I, you know, to this day cherish the fact that, you know, that's the legacy that he set for our family, and that's why I think it's so incumbent upon us in, in the succeeding generations to, you know, withhold those standards and, and learn from their hard work and, and, and what they accomplished. I, you know, listen, I totally agree. I, I say, and, and if, you have, if you work at Skybridge, you get this big lecture from me that my, from my grandfather or my grandmother or, or on, on both sides of the family or my dad, my mom and dad never went to college. Uh, uh, my, my dad basically started out as a construction worker, uh, spent 42 years at the same company, and he gave me my last name, Joe Clean. There's no blemishes on my last name. And so this is my 28th year on Wall Street. And if you work here at Skybridge, you hear the same lecture from me almost every day. You're not going to do anything to dishonor my father. Okay, we're going to run the firm with the highest level of integrity and the highest level of standards. And you are somebody that I look at, and I think about your career. Uh, and I should also add that you're my attorney. Your firm is my attorney. You guys do an amazing job. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Tell us how you got targeted into uh, the law, and tell us about your early experiences there. Well, you know, it's uh, an interesting path I took. Uh, we had the construction company almost 70 years, so when I graduated from undergraduate school, I went to work in the family business. But I always wanted to be an attorney, I think, from when I was uh, a child. My grandfather, I remember, I, was, I think it was eight or nine years old, and, he, and it was over Christmas break, and he, and he said, I'm going to take you downtown. I'm going to go. I have some meetings. We'll go to the movies and come home. And, and he, he was, um, my grandmother died at a young age. She was in her 40s, so he, you know, lived by himself. So he picked me up. We went downtown. He had to meet with his lawyer and give him his annual retainer uh, and sign a bunch of corporate documents. And I walked into these law offices and, and you know, um, just was taken by, it was different than walking into the offices for the construction company. We didn't have Persian rugs on the floors and roll-top desks, you know, <laughs> drafting tables and, right. you know, right. a much simpler environment. And then we went over to the Union League to have lunch. And, and, uh, and in that day, especially, there were very few ethnics that were having lunch at the Union League. <laughs> Today, I'm proud to say I'm a member of the board of, of the Union League. But that, that made that impression on me. And, and I remember he gave me the desktop diary for lawyers for the year red leather, and I kept it for years. So I always had that drive. So the short of it is, I decided that after working in the family business for six years, I went back to law school and kind of fibbed to my father. He said, well, I'll get a law degree. It'll help us in the construction business, especially for our real estate investments. Well, then I got bitten by the bug to move to Washington after I graduated, and I started my career 
in Washington, D.C. at the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and then build a career, uh, you know, uh, in uh, the financial services. Who was the commissioner side. that you worked for? Um, John Chad was the chairman of the commission. Then sure. remember, he came out of EF yeah, Hutton. Sure, absolutely. Great you know, leader. He built an amazing uh, fitness center for the Harvard Business School okay. uh, yeah. after he left. And he was EF Hutton and was the SEC commissioner. Um, tell us about that. What, what, what did you learn at the SEC? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it was a, absolutely uh, a great place to start a legal career. I had great respect for my colleagues at the commission. Uh, the, you know, um, the woman who hired me, Kathy McGrath, was uh, the director of the Division of Investment Management at the time. Uh, she um, was a, a very effective leader of the staff. Sometimes she, you know, would give the <laughs> registrants a hard time. But, but always what I learned from her is it was never about a particular agenda. It was about understanding what your responsibilities were in that position and being fair about, you know, uh, executing on the job and doing what you were, uh, you know, charged to do. So, uh, so I want to I step back a little bit because it, 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 it's dawning on me that we do have a lot of financial service people that listen to us, but we also have a lot of young people. So, Joe, in your own words, tell us what the SEC is, the Securities Exchange Commission. Mm-hmm. If you had explained it to somebody that wasn't in our business. Yeah. Well, you know, um, historically, uh, after the, the crash in, in 1929, uh, there was a lot of complaining about abusive uh, market activities in the 20s. Um, the way uh, stocks were traded, there were no laws against insider trading. There were no laws against abusive corporate structures that tended to dilute the interest of ultimate shareholders. So the short of it was, after the crash, uh, Congress took action. So here's here's a, an interesting thing. In 1933, they had, they uh, the, they adopted uh, Congress passed the Securities Act of 1933. For that one year, if you were registering securities. They didn't get registered at the SEC. They got registered at the Federal Trade Commission. It was basically truth in sales. The following year, they set up the SEC in 1934. And I don't know if you, you, you probably know this, Anthony, but for your listeners, Joseph Kennedy was named the first chairman of the SEC. Well, let's, tell, let's tell everybody who he is. So Joseph P. Kennedy uh, was the father of John F. Kennedy, uh, had nine children. Uh, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt thought he was a scoundrel, and he said that, listen, I'm going to put a thief in charge of this thing to catch a thief. And he said, this guy knows every illegal practice out there, and he'll clean this up. Yeah, because in the 20s, and it's, in, and it's all basically in, the, in, in, the, in his biographies, in the histories of the Kennedys, you know, I think he was a principal at Hayden Stone, an old-time brokerage firm, and, and made a lot of money in st- stock trading, banking, the movie industry, but they used to have these bear pools they would form and raid the market. And that's one of the things that they, you know, helped precipitate uh, some of the market so break let, in 29. Let, let, let's tell somebody what a bear pool is or what it used to be. Uh, a group of guys would get together, they'd pick one stock, and they would sell that stock short into the marketplace, so meaning they would they would find somebody that was long that stock or owned it. They'd ask them to borrow it. They'd sell it into the marketplace, and they press the stock down. And if you had an imbalance of sellers relative to buyers – that stock would plummet and crash. And then, of course, the bear pool would then go out and buy the stock back at pennies, uh, and they would make all of that profit between where they sold it and where they bought it back. And so exactly. That, and, that, and that's exactly. something and, and that the still, SEC cleaned up you, you in can, the 1930s. And as you know, you, there are still trading strategies where you could short stocks and all the differences. There are rules that surround all of this. So in 1934, the Securities Exchange Act established the SEC with a commission and it's, you know, an independent agency of the government. So ultimately, 
Um, you know, when I went to work there in 1983, um, I was assigned to a division that was charged with uh, regulating the investment management industry, mutual funds and investment advisors and the like. And uh, I have to say that it was a very rewarding uh, time in, in my professional career, and I have great memories of my days in Washington. So, so when did you uh, start your private practice then? How many years were you at the SEC? I was at the SEC almost three years, and then I, I didn't go into starting my own firm. I actually started my career at a, at a very large Philadelphia firm's Washington office. At the time, was a, not such a large office today as it's the Deckard firm. Yeah. And then over time, uh, you know, I, I practiced in that space. Um, moved back to Philadelphia, and uh, 20 years ago, uh, I joined our current firm, Pepper Hamilton. Uh, I was asked to come in and actually... Again, there's an entrepreneurial streak that runs through our family. I started our investment management practice, and uh, you know, very proud today of you know and what it, we've built. It's it's literally one of the best investment management practices in the country. And I, ironically, I uh, before I even met you, I was a client of your firm's because of some of the great people that you have working there. And uh, you know, in my law school experience, I obviously didn't go to practice law. Uh, but I think one of the things that I benefited from having gone to law school is a lot of my friends are practicing law. And so I pick up the phone all the time and say, okay, who do I go to for this? Who do I go to for that? And your firm is legendary uh, in the securities business. And so we're very, very grateful to have you guys as our, our attorneys. As a private lawyer long ago, you actually testified in front of the U.S. House of Representatives. What was that like and what were you testifying right. about? Well, I actually was there twice. And I, and I always you know, was proud of the fact that I was invited, not subpoenaed. And, <laughs> and, and Mike Oxley, God bless his soul, was, you know, was, was a friend and, and, you know, colleague in Washington. I, I stayed pretty well connected to Washington. I still do, uh, and especially a lot of friends on the Hill. So uh, in advance of the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation, the first legislation was called CARTA, and it was really kind of Sarbanes-Oxley light. And I was invited to testify on the effects of this legislation, and uh, and, and and that testimony, uh, I was pretty emphatic about the fact that I said, "Be careful of what you legislate, because when you pass, you know, when you pass the law as a statute, Congress passes it. Very hard to change. Uh, on the other hand, if you um, want to more." Um, effectively regulate the markets, then you delegate authority to like the SEC and say, okay, write some more rules in here, because then they could always, it's easier then to modify the rules and change them. What happened was, though, fast forward, um, you, we had, you know, th this was right after, like, the, the Enron collapse. Then WorldCom came after. Yes, yeah, so and let, after let's give a little historical context. So, so uh, we had a couple of large companies that were fibbing on mm -hmm. their financial statements, or they were stretching the rules on their financial statements, and we had certain CEOs that were letting their underlings run amok. Mm -hmm. And so when these companies imploded, thousands or tens of thousands of people lost a lot of money. Some people lost their life savings. Some people lost money in retirement accounts. This is going back into the 2001 to 2003 time period. And so the Congress looked into this, and, and they basically said we need to pass some legislation to make these corporations more accountable uh, for their financial documents and so forth. And thus, the Sarbanes-Oxley, named after the two yeah. gentlemen that wrote the legislation, at least their yeah. staffs. Yeah, Senator Sarbanes, Democrat from Maryland, Mike Oxley, uh, Republican from Ohio. And interestingly enough, um, after the WorldCom, 
uh, failure, then there was this real, you know, groundswell from the from the Congress basically. This is these are bad things, and that's when they put actually the criminal <laughs> exposure in the statute. So when you sign these certifications today, when you certify your financial statements that are going to be filed with the public, if um, if you're certifying false and misleading financial statements, uh, then there's you know there's criminal um, ramifications that attach to it. So that um, you has, know, it, has it worked? Well, you know, that, then interesting thing, the second time I went back on the two-year anniversary, I was invited back to testify. And, you know, I was at the panel at the hearings with, I think at the time, was the head of uh, one of the major accounting firms and a, a couple, uh, head of one of the big stock uh, uh, trading firms. And, and, you know, a bunch of us were at the table. And they said, um, what, uh, what do you, you know, they wanted to look for the pluses and minuses. And one of the things I mentioned as a minus was the fact that uh, it was probably blocking smaller issuers to the market because of the expense of compliance. So small to mid-cat companies might have been suffering under the, under the burden. I said, and, and I said, you know, some have said, well, if you can't stand to be a public company, go private. Well, Anthony, you know even better than I. Your best valuations are in the public market. So I said, you're taking all this wealth out of the economy if you're closing our public markets. I said, so that's, that's not a good solution. Well, one, one thing that uh, contemporary markets are noticing, and I'd like your comment on it, is that there's a lot of companies, Uber, I could pick many of them, Dropbox, uh, some very large private enterprises with large private enterprise value have elected not to enter the public marketplace. And when you ask the CEOs questions as to why, they say, I don't want anything to do with the public markets mm -hmm. because of all of this regulation. What do you say to that? Well, you know, there is a high degree of truth to it, but you also have to be careful about, again, as you know, you trade in the market, price discovery. If something, if there's a break in the market in, on maybe a problem with one of these big ones with a bad valuation, you know, I think you saw some of this too, even with, you know, a large fund like Fidelity and others that were taking pre, you know, uh, IPO valuations and all and how they're treating, you know, that type of, of security and valuation then it, it could be probably because the, the public markets are probably the best indicator of, of value. Uh, on the other hand, some companies just are not as well suited to the public markets as others. And today, I, I'll be honest with you, too, I am discouraged by uh, too much regulation. I mean, I think after 08, it, it's, it's, it's human nature. The pendulum swings. I think it swung too far. So uh, in the, uh, you know, the regulation of financial institutions and, and public companies, um, you know, they can be counterproductive. As I mentioned earlier, when I went back to testify on the anniversary of Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, one of my observations was, though, I said, you know, one of the pluses is that when you um, basically demand more honesty and transparency in the market, then your cost of the indemnity starts to drop. I said, look now to see how much director and officer insurance premiums are going to cost and, and some of these other expenses of cleaning up after a mess. I, I used the analogy. I said, you know, if you build a building and you go to buy fire insurance for it, you're going to get a, a rate for the fire insurance. If you build the building and put fire sprinklers in it, you'll get a reduced rate for the fire insurance. So over time, the reduced insurance premium pays for the fire sprinklers. So you know what? Sometimes you have to put a little, you put a little discipline in the system, but over time, you know, you benefit from it. You put too much uh, you know, regulation or you overburden the system, uh, 
and then that is really sucking the vitality out of the free so, market. So Andy Andy Pusner, who is uh, the chairman and CEO of CKE, Big Carl, you know, Carl Jr.'s restaurants in California, very successful CEO, was on Wall Street Week with me at the Republican National Convention. He said that either person, he or she, the next president, should go to all the regulatory entities and say, okay, pick out the 10% of your regulations that you don't need. What are the bottom 10%? And we should just broadly mm-hmm. eliminate those immediately, which will take some of the pressure off of these businesses. So do you think that's a good idea or is that too? Well, you know, it makes a good point. But I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I found to be uh, exciting when I worked at the SEC, I was there in the Reagan administration. So I was there working on projects that involved rule changes and all that really the adoption of Regulation D, how to start opening the markets uh, and and to to easier capital formation Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So we saw, quote unquote, deregulation and a lot of good things happened. Now, you always have to balance against that if if it goes too far in one direction, then, you know, bad players can get involved because a certain degree of regulation protects the honest players in the market. On the other hand, you know, there are regulations, especially in some of the agencies outside of financial regulation, that um, I think put a tax on the market. Right. And that's that's not uh, not a good thing. Uh, when you graduated from law school, uh, were your parents proud of you? Oh, yes, yes. Tell us yes. why. I think that, um, you know, first in the family to have a law degree. Were you the first to go to college? Um, yeah, my father went to college but didn't graduate because he, the, the business pulled him back. Right. So, yeah, my generation was the first one to, to have an undergraduate and so, a graduate degree. So so uh, did they want you to be a judge? Uh, i got to okay. ask this question because I know it's coming out of the blue, but, like, in my family, uh, if you were Italian and you were going to law school, my all of my relatives wanted me to be a judge. And so one day, uh, I, I, as a, Barbara Sinatra did a favor for me, um, and she introduced me to Justice Scalia, who I know you, you were a very fond, close personal friend of. And, and I had lunch with him in D.C., June of 2014. And I said, look, when you were named to the Supreme Court, my mother was cooking meatballs like out of style yeah. here. She thought it was the greatest thing ever to have an Italian-American on the Supreme Court. And he says to me, Anthony, do you know why? I said, geez, I don't really know why. He says, well, you know, when you're a judge, your mom thinks you're incorruptible. Okay, it's either being a priest or a judge. <laughs> if you're a mayor, then she thinks you're on the take. You know, if you're a cop, she thinks you're on the take. I don't mean any disrespect to the mayor or the cops. It's just a little bit of a joke. My, 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 my point is, is that uh, did they push you to be a judge? I know they, they never no, did that. No, not, different, not. Different, we were, we were always involved. Thing. The family's always involved politically because of being in business and all right. that. So we knew a lot of, and in Pennsylvania, we have elected judges. Mm-hmm. So we knew a lot of judges and knew a lot of politicians. Uh, and I believe that, that probably, I think what my parents wanted for me and my father, you know, passed away a few years ago, uh, was just to be the best at what you're going to be, be honest. And, Did you ever you think know, about going into politics, Joe? Um, no. Tell us why. You know, um, I think that as the more I got into my professional career, I think it takes a certain um, personality uh, to, you know, go into politics. And I think it's something you have to start at a younger age because you have to get on that track. Uh, but I've been always very close to politicians, especially I have respect for good political leaders, not a lot of respect for those that aren't so good, and especially those that are 
you know, don't, don't play by the rules. Um, but um, I think it's important, especially as a business lawyer, especially clients I have, to stay very um, much close to, you know, what's going on in the political uh, arena, our lawmakers, because I think the only way you could really properly continue to advise sophisticated clients is to, you have to be tuned into what is happening now and what you expect to be happening. And so uh, I've always, you know, really kept, uh, stayed close to Washington, especially on the, on, the, on the national level, you know, federal political, because our, our practices. That's common sense. It's good, it's good, it's good advice. Uh, have you lived the American dream? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think the American dream is still alive in our country? Yes. Do you think it's uh, harder for working class people or even lower middle class people to socially mobilize and move up, up through the channel of classes in the United States? You know, I don't think it's harder to move up because you see time and time again those who succeed. I think that what worries me a little bit about the, 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 um, uh, this, the system today, this idea of um, that government knows best and, and everything is programmed and everything is – that kind of goes against the grain of, you know, our free spirits as Americans and, uh, and, and the drive to move forward. And, you know, I think they're stifling – probably entrepreneurial creativity and all, because you're basically told, well, this is what you have to do in school, this is what you have to do, and, and, and that's, and, and uh, you know, it's kind of a sad commentary that, you know, probably the best job growth we've seen in the last few years is, is really working in the government. And I say that as somebody who started a career in the government, um, because I thought it was, you know, an honorable way to start a profession, especially in the public service. But on the other hand, just looking for, you know, the government to solve the problems of employment and 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 how life should be managed, um, then you start getting into look at some of the you know other governments around the world. Doesn't work. You get Joe, stratified. Joe, it's never worked. There's an octopus that comes out onto the public and it starts to strangle their aspirational thought process, their creativity, and their opportunity. I'm for an energetic government. I'm a very practical person. I'm the product of a public school. I believe we've got to go to the moon so that we can create new technologies, and I believe we need more infrastructure in the country. But what I'm not for uh, is a parochialism and a paternalism that takes place in uh, uh, some people in terms of them injecting the government into every aspect of our life. And I'll give you a good example. I mean, we, are, we share our common ethnic heritage, Italians, I and mean, we spend a lot of time in Italy, you and I would go over there. It, it's, it saddens me when I go over there to see the sclerosis that's set in, uh, in, in especially the, the European Union countries and countries like Italy, because there is such creative talent in that country, and there's, there's wealth in that country. Unfortunately, it's, you know, kind of dead capital. It's locked up. And, and, and who suffers from that are the young people. They have a very high unemployment rate of the young, well-educated young. Mm -hmm. we, we hire, we take in our firm, I take every year a, a, a visiting Italian attorney, just recently out of law school or practicing a couple of years. And they come here and they're fascinated by, Do you, you know, pay them by the word, Joe? Because Italians like to talk yeah, a lot. I'm just wondering yeah, if they're getting paid by the word. Yeah, no, we, we cap that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and it's an interesting, you know, um, dynamic when they come over because they get so excited to see the opportunity here. And I always tell them, you have to go home, though, try and make things better. But if you think about it, things are so stratified there with, um, you know, the, the social welfare system. Um, and then what happens is when you get into that system, 
you talk about here cronyism. Yeah, the problem, the complaint in Italy too is, well, unless you're, you know, well-connected here and there, then you won't get into the best schools to study medicine and best law in here. And that then, you know, when you talked to, you asked me the question earlier, if, if you're just a bright young kid from a small town in Italy and you want to move up into, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more difficult. I fear that, you know, we're, we're headed into that, maybe that slippery slope. Yeah, we have to figure yeah. out a way to reverse that because at the, at the end of the day, uh, this isn't a left or right analysis by me. It's sort of a right or wrong analysis. There are certain processes and systems and, and policies that work, uh, and you can look at 150 years of socialism and you slouch towards slower growth, uh, less opportunity economically for the demographic of the young, uh, and you get a lot of crony capitalism where people funnel money off the top of the governmental system uh, you can see it not just in places like Venezuela, of course, and Cuba and places like that, but you can see it in the socialist structures of Europe, particularly in the Mediterranean countries. Mm-hmm. And so we have to study that, and we have to figure out ways to avoid that. Um, but, you know, you came from a self-actualizing household. You came from a household where people told you, and I know, that, I know this about you, and I'm not really trying to be presumptuous, but I'm sure your parents told you that you could do anything that you wanted in life that you put your mind to. Am I wrong? Oh, no, it's, I think that's then that's that's the beauty of having um, you know a family structure where you have the support of a family and the support not in the sense of you know just basically uh, so you could go home and cry about how everybody's beating up on you. No, it's basically you understood what your responsibilities were. You know, you, you, you better bring home the good report card. You better, you know, have a good work ethic. You better treat people well. You know, that's that type of um, family environment. What is, were some uh, of the other things that your parents told you as a kid? Well, I, I have to say the one thing that I, you know, that I, I, I really do enjoy life. I, I, you know, as people, somebody said to me one time, they said, how could you be a lawyer and be so happy? He said, because a lot of lawyers, you know, they're not so happy. I said, you know what? You, <laughs> you, 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 make, you make your own way. So I, I said that, uh, you know, and, and, I, you know, and, and I'll, I'll be the first to say, too, I, it's, it's great to hear stories of, you know, like self-made Horatio Alger stories. I, I gave a speech one time. I was honored in, in an event, and my, my, parent, my father was still alive. And I said, I have to say that. I said, I can say, you know, fortunately that, I, I, I did not have to, you know, work my way, you know, uh, from a, a, out of a, a very um, humble uh, background. And, you know, I said, you know, we, we led an indulged childhood. We were fortunate enough that, you know, my father was, uh, you know, carried the success of my grandfather. So we had the best of everything. But I said there's a difference between being indulged and being spoiled. We were taught proper respect, proper work ethic. And I said, and, and the best legacy that, you know, we could leave for he and my, and, and my grandfather were, you know, moving forward and just, you know, taking it one step further. Have we lost that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so because, you know, we're raising children now, I think you and I. I have three children. I'm very proud of them, all three of them. You know, one works up here in, in New York. He's, you know, he, he, he worked. It's interesting. Did well in school, but you know, in his first jobs, I worried about. Uh, okay, did I said to my father one day? I said, I hope he has the work ethic, you know. And and I found out, you know, he he had a job. He was, you know, he was uh, working in Washington. He was working in the White House staff. And I heard back from some of my friends, terrific, you know, first one in, he's always there, always, you know. And I, I said, well, I guess I guess 
we did something right. My father said, well, he saw you get up every day and go to work and work hard. He said, that's how you teach. I said, well, thanks, Dad, because I learned it from you. Well, see, that's it. You got to get up and work, you know, and if it's 4 a.m. to make a uh, television appearance or if it's 11 p.m. to finish yeah, up a dinner, uh, you got to show the In kids In fact, that. I have to tell you, my, you know, I have two daughters, and now one just moved back to Philadelphia from New York because my other daughter, Catherine, she just graduated from law school with a JD MBA. So she took a position Congratulations. at JP Morgan Wealth Management. So Anthony, you'll love us. So down at the beach, after I finished reading Goodbye Gordon, she read it. She came back to me. I said, Catherine, you did. So she loved the book. Oh, she said, you. Dad, this is a book. And when the, the students start at Villanova every year in the business school, I'm going to uh, mention it to our provost. They're given a book to read, like the founder of Starbucks and all. They have to read your book. Oh, it's very because nice I you think say that. I, I enjoyed the book for, you know, your whole story about, you know, starting at, at Goldman and doing the things. But, you know, it's interesting what came out of from Catherine. Not only did she, I think, you know, get your story, but she said, Dad, you know what really impressed me too? She said, you know, in that book, they were, the Italians were helping them all along. Yeah. I think that sense of community, yeah. it's something we joke about sometimes. No, no but, question. But, you know, and, and to, in this generation, for that to resonate with her, and I think we, we have... We have a lot of challenges, but I think we, we still have a lot to be hopeful for. I, I had to tell you, I was blessed with a lot of great mentors. Uh, my Uncle Scary, Orlando Scaramucci, my dad, my uh, uh, Lou Campanelli, my Uncle Sal. Uh, but Lou Campanelli was my first boss, and boy, did he, he beat up on me. But it was tough love, and he used to always, at, like on a Friday night, I worked in his uh, supermarket. On a Friday night, he would like say, do you want to bring a rotisserie chicken home to your mother? I was like... Not really, but I'll take a six pack of Budweiser out of the game. No, you're not. You know, yeah. you're not all. But he was he was just a great human being. And he, I, when I was applying to the Planum Country Club, I'd worked for him at age 16. I'm 32. And I'm trying to get into Planum Country Club, and I'm looking at the list. So, Mr. Campanelli's on the list. I called Lou, and he got me. You know, he got me through there. But, but I did try to show that in the book that like you can't be a success on your own. I don't believe in the notion of a self-made man or self-made person. It takes a community of people to make you successful, and you got to go up and down the line. You got to help the people that are coming after you, and you got to ask the people that are on top of you or have experienced things that you want to experience for help as well. So it's very nice of you to say that. You're emblematic of that, though. I will say that about you. Everybody that I talk to you about you, whether it's a Maria Bartiromo or the Violas, Vinny or John Viola, everybody has the uh, the same thing to say about you. You have this patrician, paternalistic quality, uh, and you're incredibly generous. And before I let you go, I want you to tell us a little bit about the things that you are doing in Italy and also uh, in terms of our heritage as Italians and the things that you're trying to preserve. Well, you know, as chair of the uh, board of the National Italian American Foundation, one of the things I really wanted to do during my chairmanship was to really strengthen the ties between these two great countries. As, and I say great countries, great allies of one another. So we've now, uh, I think, uh, earned country, a lot of... Just, and just for listeners out there, our country is named after an Italian, okay? Americo Vespucci, who put the map together, he named this land America after himself. Now, God bless him. He was obviously a little bit of a narcissistic Italian, but God bless yeah, him. We'll okay? take it. Yeah, amen. So My the, grandfather used to say to me, Joe, he'd say, hey, you know... We discovered it. 
We named it. These other people are just living here. This thing is all about us yeah, Italians. Yeah. And, 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 and we used to get a kick out of it because the third one was we built it. So as contractors, <laughs> we were afraid. But uh, so we've, we've developed a very good you know, bilateral relationship at the highest levels with the Italian government here. And that's why you'll see when you come to our events for the National Italian American Foundation, um, it's now just not only the celebration of Italian Americans, it's a celebration of the relationship between Italy and America because as we get you know, more... We're an assimilated ethnic group in this country. So now, for our children, what's relevant? Well, you have to understand where you came from, you know, your roots are, and also the importance of this country to the world. So they're, they're the projects. Now, on a sad note, uh, you know, just in the last week or so, you know, this horrible earthquake in Italy. Sure. But when they had the earthquake in L'Aquila, we organized the NEF. We got together some of the other Italian-American organizations, uh, we went to uh, and actually signed the first MOU with the State Department for humanitarian relief. So we worked together with State because I was very concerned, too, if we're raising a lot of money here, I have to have accountability, we, the foundation, that the money is properly spent and goes to the right places. And we did that uh, with that with the help of the U.S. government and making sure that the programs that we supported, there was transparency and honesty in the, in the system. So now with this earthquake, I, I, I named the committee of the board. The other day, I have John Cavelli up in here in New York who worked with me on L'Aquila, and Anita McBride, who was on our board. He was, she was chief of staff to Laura Bush in the White House, and Pat Harrison, CEO of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But she was also one of Colin Powell's you know, top deputies at the State Department. And, and so it's myself and, and, and our president, John Viola. And what we're doing is getting organized. Um, we have an immediate, I think, need where we can respond. And, you know, Italy's a first world country, so this is not like a response where we have to have send food and clothing. But doctors, they already called. There is a special team we sent to L'Aquila, trauma doctors, but post-trauma from Harvard. So we're looking to fund them to send them over and then maybe some other doctors that could help with the triage. But then we'll step back and, and then consult with, you know, our government here, government there, say, okay, here's... Here are the financial resources we have. Our State Department, they, they really can't, like, rebuild monuments. It's just not. But they can, you know, help organize programs. So over the next month or so, we will be, this will be a major focus of ours to make sure we respond. And, and as I said uh, they, they, um, <clears throat> to the ambassador the other day, I was talking to him, I said, you know, we have to make clear, Italy's a first world country. They do a great job at, with first responders and how to get in. I said, that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't respond. They said, it's the analogy I use is your next door neighbor, there's either a death or illness in the family. You go over there to show your support, whether it's you bring a cake over or say, what can we do to help? Um, and that's, I, I look at it the same way. Well, you're, you're, you're a blessed guy. You're a wonderful human being. And obviously, I've, I'm helping John with that. I've made a community outreach for him, uh, John Viola, our, 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 our president. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question before we go, because you mentioned your, your grandfather. And do you have grandchildren? Children? Not yet. Not we yet. Have, we have but a marriage had... next summer. Oh, oh, all right. Oh, yeah, good. We'll, 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 we'll push him. Okay, yeah. we'll push him. But, but there's something that your grandfather left for you uh, in your mindset in terms of his conversations with you or your life experience with him. And if you had to explain that in a few words, what would it be? You know, it's, it's interesting you ask that question. I, in, in, in my, you know, study at home, I have a picture of, of my grandfather named after Joseph Darras. My mother's father was, a, 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 you know, a real personality as well. 
but I'm his namesake, and, and, and he, was a, he was a very dignified and elegant man. And, you know, what he left for me, I think, is the fact that he embodied, you know, the perfectly assimilated immigrant, came to this country, loved this country, became a very patriotic and proud American, succeeded, and was very dignified in his success. He knew how to, you know, basically we learned, you know, how philanthropy from him and how, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and good and honest business dealings and respect in the community. And my father was the same way. So you figure, but it, you know, what you think about comes this, down to integrity. Yeah, he then, came yeah. over as a six-year-old with, you know, they had nothing to show for it, and and, and what he built, and uh, and how he did it, mm -hmm. and I think that's, uh, you know, every family has a different story, but I think, in our family, I think, uh, very proud of that, and I'm proud of the fact too that we are perpetuating that, and didn't, you know, fall into, basically, you know, uh, squandering. An sure. opportunity that was delivered to us by, you know, sure. You honored, work. you honored their hard work yeah. and their grit and their self. It's interesting that you know, just as an aside, um, I remember my my son one day was driving to school. He's in, now he's just turned thirty. He was in eighth grade, and he, he knew a lot of our clients. He was some of them from around the main line. He said, he "said Dad, why are you a lawyer?" He said, "He said I think you're smarter than Mr. So and So, who's big time guy, you know." He said, uh, "Why why don't you stay in business?" I said, J.D., I said, I could have stayed in business and I could have been, you know, really successful at it. I said, but, you know, sometimes in life you have to do what you want to do. And I said, and let me tell you this. I said, you know, um, you live in a good life? He said, yes. I said, well, I think it was important to our family, too, that we succeeded in business, but there were still certain, there were still certain barriers to the ethnics. I mean, certain clubs, you couldn't. I, I said, you know, I said, for us, I said, I'm very proud of the fact that I became a professional. You know, uh, I'm very active in, in the community, and especially in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. where we can go anywhere we want to go and do anything we want to do. And be comfortable in your own skin. You know, I, 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 and I said in one of my first podcasts, I said it in Goodbye Gordon Gecko, my book, I went for the job that I thought made me look cool to everybody. I went for the job where, because of my self-consciousness and my insecurity, I needed to show people, hey, look at me. And that was terrible as a job. And I wrote about it, and goodbye. Yeah, I got yeah. fired from that job, and then I had to repair myself. And then it ultimately dawned on me I had to start doing things that I really loved, and and I give this message to my children as well. You're gonna be rich enough. You're gonna have enough food. You're gonna have enough housing. Uh, but focus on your dream. Focus on your passion. Uh, well, you've been incredibly generous with your time today, so I want to thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I, I, can't, I can't tell anybody here about your social media exposure because Joe's old school. He doesn't have a Twitter account, doesn't have <laughs> Facebook. I could give out your cell phone, but I, I know when, <laughs> when Donald Trump gave out Lindsey Graham's cell phone, that didn't work out yeah. too well. But I want to really personally thank you, uh, and uh, you, you, you've been terrific, and you've been fantastic for Italian-Americans, and one of the things I'm very proud of is being Italian, uh, but really being Italian, and really, you know, uh, the love of family, the commitment to the culture, and the understanding that we have to help each other, and we also have to celebrate each other's successes, and you are the embodiment of that, so thank you, Joe. No, thank you. Uh, remember to email me, if you can, at, at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scaramucci. Don't forget to watch Wall Street Week, please. Even if you're not watching, turn it on. Fox Business, Friday nights, 8 p.m., Saturday at 9 a.m., Sunday again at 9 a.m. 
Uh, subscribe to this podcast, please, TMI. Uh, we're on iTunes. You can rate and review it. You can tell us what we're doing right and wrong. I need to know so we can bring you the best content, the stuff that matters to you. Share the podcast with friends and coworkers you think would enjoy listening to some of this stuff. Uh, until next week, have a prosperous week. <laughs>